Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 20, verse 23. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. Our God is a just God. He is a righteous God, He is an honest God, and He requires nothing less of His people. Greed, lies, deceit, Misinformation and theft are an abomination because they misrepresent our God and His laws. They are not good because they create an evil culture. When diverse weights exist and when dishonest scales are used, it is the righteous and the honest who suffer. Thus they are an abomination to the Lord. Now, our culture doesn't generally use scales in commerce, but the principle is true. With the boom of technology, those who desire to take advantage of others ever increase in their ingenuity. Elderly people are targeted for their vulnerability. The spam folders in our email accounts are virtually dedicated to scam artists. Reading the fine print has become absolutely necessary in business deals. And it's even becoming more and more necessary to protect ourselves against the theft of our identities. There was once a time in our country where a man's word was good and his handshake was enough. Unfortunately, those days are gone. The current definition of wisdom is a healthy skepticism and a sharp eye. This has been the result of the failure of the church to preach Christ, to live Christ, and to be Christ in our world. Because we have stopped evangelizing our society, our society has rejected Jesus. And the result is that we now face a constant barrage of evil in our culture. And this has certainly intruded itself into the realm of finance. But our God is holy and sovereign, he will overcome and he will judge wickedness wherever he finds it. In our hearts, in the marketplace, and even on the internet. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing to do please give At the end of chapter 7, Stephen was stoned a couple Sundays ago. In the beginning of chapter 8, we saw how the persecution in Jerusalem drove the gospel out into Judea and Samaria, as Christ had commanded it to go. And in particular, Philip went to Samaria, and multitudes there were converted, and there was great joy in that city. And this is where our text picks up today. We're still in Samaria, but now we're introduced to a rather fascinating character, Simon the Sorcerer, verses 9 through 11. 
But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Here we're introduced to Simon Magus. Simon's history in Samaria describes the culture into which Philip brought the gospel. There are several things to take into account here. First, if you remember, the, the Samaritans practiced a kind of adulterated Judaism. They had the Torah, but they worshipped on Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem. They practiced circumcision and they looked for a Messiah, but they also worshipped foreign gods in the high places. Second, Simon claimed to be the great power of God. In this, he claims to be a human manifestation of divinity. The Samaritans may have even wondered if he were the Messiah. Regardless, he held a position of honor and power in their midst. The next thing we notice is that Simon practiced sorcery and magic, and he used his art to impress the people. His sorcery was powerful and effective. He astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Specifically what his sorceries were is, a, is speculation to some degree, but it may have been tied to, to scientific inquiry, like studying astronomy and foretelling events, like the Magi who sought the birth of the Messiah when Jesus was born. Or it may have been demonic, or perhaps it was a mixture of the two. Regardless, Simon and the Samaritans came face to face with the gospel. And the gospel comes out on top. Verse 12. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Philip's ministry is preaching the gospel. With Philip's tagline, his title is Philip the Evangelist. All through the Gospels, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so far in Acts, when his disciples proclaim the Gospel, this is what they proclaim and preach. The things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. I'd like to take a little bit of time and, and let's think about that for a second. Because somehow we have a hard time keeping our eye on the ball here. It's absolutely imperative that we learn this, because what is the gospel is a key element of our faith. Every week we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming down, and God elevating him in the resurrection, and putting him, here, here in, the, in the Nicene it says, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. That's what we take the eye off the ball on, the, the, the kingdom aspect of the gospel. The new government which God brings down in Jesus Christ. A new government over the whole world. When we go out and evangelize, 
what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to preach the gospel. Well, and what is that? It's the kingdom of God. The things pertaining to the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. It's a new order of hierarchy in the world because Jesus is king. God has enthroned him in heaven and Jesus now has all authority in heaven and earth. This is kingdom preaching. Preaching the gospel is kingdom preaching. It's a gospel of dominion. Jesus is taking the world by storm. He has claimed to the earth, and our job as his soldiers, as his ambassadors, in this world, we're passing through, right? We are, we are pilgrims. We're passing through. We, we, are, we are citizens of a higher order, citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are ambassadors here on the earth, and our job is to proclaim the truth from the hilltops. We're to be a light on a hill. We're to be salt and light. And this gospel is twofold. First, it is excellent news. Gospel, evangelion, means good news. The gospel is first and foremost excellent news. It's free grace and free forgiveness of sins and free reconciliation with the God of heaven and earth. But that's the second part of the gospel. It's a dire warning to everything and everyone who dares to elevate himself. If Jesus is king of heaven and earth, and if Jesus is the true great power of God, then nothing and nobody else is, so idols and idolaters must beware. So the first part of the gospel is good news, free grace, free reconciliation with God. The second part is that we need reconciliation with God. We need that grace, because without it, we're toast. So when we're to go out spreading the gospel, our job is to ask one very important question. And it's the question we ask every Sunday in our worship. The question is, is who do you worship? If you look at our, uh, our worship order, every Sunday we have a call to worship. That's our job in evangelizing. Our job is to call the world to worship Jesus Christ because he is God and he is Lord. He's he's king over heaven and earth. So our job is to ask, who do you worship? Because if it's not Jesus, then you're not worshiping the right God. If you worship anything or anybody besides Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, Messiah, Master, and King, then you are in in for a world of hurt. However, the free grace of the gospel, and that's also in our order of worship. We call everyone to worship. The first thing we do is we confess our sins. We confess that we need Jesus. And then that's the beautiful beautiful message of the gospel. He gives us a free pardon of sin. He paid the penalty for our sin for us. He's a gracious Messiah, a gracious master, and a gracious king, and he gives us absolution. And then he has fellowship with us. He he comes to us. He brings himself to us. He teaches us what that means for our lives in the preaching of the word, in our prayers. And then then he finishes, we, we, we finish our worship service with communion. And that's where God feeds us. And he blesses us and gives us the strength to go out and proclaim this gospel to our world.
the gospel of a kingdom, a gracious and powerful kingdom. So, you must submit to Christ, and if you don't, you're in trouble. But if you're willing to submit to him and worship him, then he offers you true, free, and eternal salvation. Life in the presence of the Most High and All-Powerful God, and direct communion with Him by His Holy Spirit. Philip's proclamation of the things of the kingdom of God meets with God's blessing. Multitudes convert, and both men and women are baptized. Even Simon accepts the gospel. Verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Simon was a magician. But Philip brought a new kind of magic. Simon had claimed to be the power of God, but Philip brought the true power of God. And this proclamation brought with it proof. Philip performed miracles and signs. Back in verse 7 of chapter 8, we read that how he cast out unclean spirits and healed many who were paralyzed and lame. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, bring healing. They, they re restore humanity to God. And Simon recognized a power in Philip's words and in his message and in his miracles that he did not know. And so he grasped on to Philip. He continued with Philip. He wanted to know more. He became a disciple. And because the gospel comes out on top. Next we see the apostles come down to Samaria. Verses 14 to 17. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. But when they had come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. These ambassadors from Jerusalem, Peter and John, are sent down to check it out. Remember the great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans? In the Gospels, Jesus specifically commanded the disciples to avoid the towns of Samaria. Because the kingdom of God was specifically promised to the Jews. It wasn't until the ultimate rejection of the Gospel by the Jews that it starts to go out. Not until after they murdered Jesus, and then they murdered Stephen. Remember also how in Stephen's sermon, his specific point was that God worked with Abraham and Joseph and Moses, specifically not in Jerusalem, and not at the temple, the holy place that Stephen was accused of blasphemy. And in the persecution, it is Philip not the apostles, who brings the gospel to Samaria. Stephen and Philip were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Christians. And they grasped the bigger picture of the gospel before the apostles did. 
Jesus, before he had ascended, he told the apostles that the gospel would go first to Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the world, the, the ends of the earth. But the apostles are still wrapping their heads around this. It's still countercultural for them. Philip and Stephen realized God's worldwide plan. And while the apostles are still figuring it out, but of course this got Stephen killed and Philip persecuted. Philip was driven out of Jerusalem. But that's all in God's plan too. God uses the persecution to spread the gospel. So Peter and John are sent down to Samaria because they heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God. And there's a couple of points of interest here also. First, Peter's not the Pope. He, the, the apostles sent him to Samaria. The, the apostles who were at Jerusalem sent him. If Peter was the Pope, he'd just say, I think I need to go down there. So that's one point of interest. But second, it's interesting that John... John was one of the ambassadors to the Samaritans. And what's interesting about that is, is, is because it was James and John who desired to send fire down from heaven upon a Samaritan village. Back in Luke 9, verse 50, starting at verse 54, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So it's interesting, first, aside, Peter's not the Pope. Second, John formerly wants to destroy the Samaritan village. Now he's coming down to see the Gospel's proclamation and work in the Samaritan villages. And the third point of interest is, is that in the book of Acts, the apostles are regularly listed in pairs. And Peter and John are one of those pairs. And this is interesting in how Peter and John are somewhat opposites. Both were very close to Jesus. Very close to Jesus. But Peter was fiery and impulsive. And John was a dreamer. You get that when, you, when you're reading through the apocalypse. Or even his, his, his epistle. He's very pastoral. Their personalities were distinct, but they were a great pair because they were unified in the Spirit. Remember the end of the book of John when Jesus foretells that Peter's going to die by crucifixion. And then Peter says, what about him? What about John? And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. But in the Spirit, these two are united in ministry. Even though they're so distinct in their personalities, they work together. And it's precisely this spirit, in opposition to the spirit that they did not know that they were of when Jesus rebukes them earlier, it's precisely in this spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we see them, that we, that we see them concerned about. They prayed and laid hands on the Samaritans for the giving of the Holy Spirit, knowing that this was essential to power in the church. This, of course, begs a question about the laying on of hands and the, and the work of the Holy Spirit. The question is this. What's going on here? The Samaritans had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Wasn't that enough? Until the apostles laid hands on them, obviously the reception of the Holy Spirit was outward and outwardly discernible and recognizable. 
But what did that look like? Was it speaking in tongues? Was it making prophecies? And the text here just doesn't say it. Many other places in Acts, that's frequently what it's talking about, uh, speaking in tongues, making prophecies. But the promise of the gospel back in Acts 2 was, this was Peter's, Peter's sermon back in Acts 2 at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, apparently, in the narrative of the Gospels, this happens in different manners. And it's mediated at different times. But the sequence of events, cha- of events changes in the narrative. At Pentecost, the apostles were gathered together, praying in the upper room. And the room was filled with a rush of wind, and, 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 and the Holy Spirit just alighted on their heads. There was no laying on of hands there. In Acts 4, when the, the church was bound by unity and peace and the spread of the gospel and they were they were all praying together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here the apostles laid the, laid their hands on on the Samaritans and they were given the Holy Spirit. In chapter 9 Ananias, a disciple, he wasn't even an apostle, but he lays his hands on Paul and Paul receives the Holy Spirit. In chapter 10, the Holy Ghost falls on Cornelius and his household before they're even baptized. So what we can learn from this is that the Spirit is like the wind. You can't see Him coming or going, but you can see that He's working. He's not to be manipulated by men. It's not for men to comprehend or understand or abuse the mysteries of God. And that's where we come to Simon's sin. Acts 8, verses 18 to 24. Well, it's 23. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray to God, and perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Simon's confusion may be attributed to the appearance of mediation of the Spirit. It certainly looked like it was the apostles who were doing this. They laid hands on, and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like. When he saw that through the laying on the, the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. In this, we see that Simon really did not understand the gospel. He didn't get it. What was Simon's sin, technically? In this we should look at Peter's rebuke. Simon thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. That's where Simon did not understand the gospel. He did not understand who God was and what the gospel was. He wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy the power to bestow the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy a position of authority in the church. 
He wanted glory. Selfishly. In his mind, the power of the apostles to bestow the Holy Spirit was just like the sorcery that he practiced. It was just stronger magic. But it was still a manipulation of God. A manipulation of God by man. And if that was true, then that power to manipulate God could be learned and it could be acquired. So he tried to, to learn it and acquire it. He tried to buy it from Peter. What he didn't understand is that the apostles are nothing like him. They're not charlatans. They're not standing on their own steam trying to impress everybody. That's not what this is about. They were truly ambassadors of, of ambassadors from the, the true God. They were conduits made holy by Christ's blood and made serviceable by the very spirit who they bestowed. It wasn't them that bestowed the spirit. It was the spirit that was using them. They were recipients of a free gift, unworthy of it, and they were fully aware of that. And this highlights the difference between Christianity and every, every other religion. Humility versus pride. Die to yourself, give it all up, and just look to God for the, the free gift. Or try and earn your salvation. Try and be good enough. Try and make it on your own steam. Simon was full of pride. He allowed himself to be called the great power of God. Peter, on the other hand, knew what it was to be called out on his hypocrisy in his denials before the crucifixion. He knew what it was to know the free and powerful mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. So Peter rightly brings a harsh and powerful condemnation on Simon's head. Remember the gospel? Who do you worship? Simon's request betrays his idolatry. It betrays his false worship, his false baptism. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses proclaimed how idolatry was the root of bitterness and pride was the outcome. Simon was poisoned by bitterness. He sought his own glory and was jealous of the gospel's power over his former devotees. He wanted what the apostles had. He wanted glory. But he wanted it unjustly. He wanted it wickedly. He wanted it for his own selfish ends. He didn't want it for the glory of God. He was bound by iniquity in that he couldn't fall down at the feet of Jesus Christ. He couldn't be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ or relieved of the guilt of his sin, even after professing faith and being baptized, because his faith was not in the real Jesus. His faith was in a caricature of Jesus. So then, did Philip make a, make, a, make a mistake when he baptized him? 
Is that, is that what, ha what's, what happened? I mean, maybe Philip should have known better than to baptize him. No, Philip did not make a mistake. Simon's profession, outwardly, was real and credible. God does not give church leaders the power to read hearts. That's not our job, even. A new heart is the work of the Holy Spirit. But if liars get into the church, as they do, they receive a greater damnation, a greater condemnation, unless they repent, which is why Peter's rebuke is so intense. Speaking to a baptized Christian, Simon, who's recently baptized and professed Christ, Peter says, your money perish with you. Nonetheless, Peter leaves forgiveness on the table. It's not all despair for Simon. He leaves forgiveness on the table in his exhortation to Simon that he repent. Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. So was Simon a believer? History has not treated him well. His name is the source of our word simony, which is the purchase of ecclesiastical office or spiritual power. The early church fathers thought that he was the father of all heretics and the inventor of Gnosticism. There are even tales of him going to Rome and establishing a cult there where he gets into a duel of sorts with St. Peter, a duel of doing different miracles, and he lost the duel. But that's speculative. Here in the text, he seems to be repentant. Verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come true, may come upon me. He seems repentant. In the end, we don't know whether Simon was saved or not. That's the work of the Spirit. That's not our job. It's not our call. But from this story, we do know that greed and the gospel do not mix. We first saw this back in chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in order to keep money for themselves. But there, they're both instantly struck dead because they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Lying is an act of war. They declared war on God and suffered the just condemnation for it. Similarly today, Simon's lust for power led him to offer money, bringing a great rebuke from Peter. Peter says, that is not the gospel. That is not the way to be saved from your sins. That's idolatry. That's not Jesus. Repent. You still need to repent. In both these stories, we see that God purifies the church. 
Greed is at the very heart of evil in the world. What was it that drove Eve to eat of the apple? She wanted something that didn't belong to her. The knowledge of good and evil. She wanted to be like God. And so far we've seen the gospel go out of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In Jerusalem, as soon as the gospel takes root and the, the, the church grows, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira where the fear of God is implanted in the hearts of people because Christians cannot lie to God and get away with it. He will judge them. Ananias and Sapphira keeled over. And the next time we see the gospel take root and multitudes are converted, Simon Magus, the great power of God in Samaria, believes and is baptized, and then he's cursed by the apostle. Because you cannot presume on the grace and the mercy of God. You cannot use God to get what you want. You must fall down at his feet and take what he gives you. Now that's good news. That's good stuff. But you must fall down at his feet. You cannot manipulate him. And the great result through all of this is the expansion of the church. Here we see the gospel's power to overcome obstacles. Verse 25, speaking of Peter and John, the text reads, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles learned a great lesson here. They learned the gospel was for Samaritans, as well as Jews. And there was no division between the church in Samaria and Jerusalem. The apostles were concerned. They wanted to make sure that what was going on was righteous and just and true. So they sent an embassy over there. They sent Peter and John. Peter and John show up. They see the work of God. They see the faith of the believers. They see the baptized. And they bestow the Holy Spirit on them. And when they turn around and go back to Jerusalem, they represent Christ in preaching the gospel in the villages of Samaria. The very villages that John was willing to call fire down from God upon. And this is the inscrutable, what we can't figure out. This is the, the, the inscrutable and yet undeniable work of the Holy Spirit. By Philip's success, the apostles have learned that the gospel goes out in Samaria. Their trip also demonstrates the unity of the body of Christ, which has crossed a great barrier in uniting Jews and Samaritans together under one king, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. Before they were, they were divided, we don't know, are we going to worship on this mountain, Gerizim, or are we going to worship at Jerusalem? And what's the, the, the Samaritan woman says? When the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I am he. The Jews have the truth, but the time is coming where you will neither worship in Jerusalem or on Gerizim, but in spirit and in truth, wherever you are. And how is that possible except by the Holy Spirit? We no longer need the mediator of the temple, the priest. We don't need to go to a high place to come see God. He comes to us. He comes to our very hearts, and that's the gospel. So on their way back home, the apostles preach the gospel in the Samaritan villages. 
And what is that gospel? Jesus died for you. God raised him from the dead, making him king. Come and worship him. Repent and be baptized and receive the free gift of God's grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. sent out the twelve disciples to the cities and towns of Israel. And what he told them was this, Go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. The gospel message has always been the center of our faith. God is establishing his kingdom in our midst. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the center of that message is the proclamation of grace. Pure and simple. God freely gives, and whoever has, has received whatever he has freely. God gives. We can only receive and then share that gift. In fact, we are commanded to share it. Freely give. But what is it that we are to give? Grace. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God. We are commanded to share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ freely. The whole purpose of his coming was to give freely and to teach us to be like him. But in order for that to happen, we must receive first. Repent of your sin, believe in the name of Jesus, and receive his forgiveness and his grace, free and clear. He reminds us of this basic truth every week in this meal in which he gives us himself and reminds us of what he has done for us. And he binds that to us in this sacrament, strengthening us to go out and give him to the world. We are the church. We become his body. We are born into him in baptism, and we are nourished by him in this meal, that we may grow up in him by his spirit. Accept his grace by faith. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.